Two or three years ago, Lindsay and I visited some missionaries on the island of Roatan off the coast of Honduras. And one day, David, the missionary there on the island, said, would you guys like to see the drop-off? I said, well, what's the drop-off? And he said, well, it's a place a few hundred yards out to sea where the ocean floor literally just drops off. I thought, well, that makes sense. And so off we went, always up for an adventure. Lindsay and I, we rode in David's boat through the choppy waves until we found a place where David tied it to a buoy. We all jumped out of the boat and started swimming out in the ocean, out in the open sea toward the drop-off. And friends, you should have seen me. I fearlessly, skillfully channeled through the waves, protecting my wife for predators that might approach us. All the while, kept afloat by my life vest until we finally reached the drop-off. Friends, it's, it's hard to explain the phenomena of what we saw. The water around Roatan is actually crystal clear. So as we're swimming out there, even as we're looking down, we're able to see bright tropical fish and sea creatures and, and coral and all the rest. And then when we reached the drop-off point where the ocean just sharply descended into a canyon below, there was this line of, of demarcation between bright and vivid color and just utter darkness and blackness. I tried swimming a few feet into the, into the blackness and then was like, oh, no, no, I, I'm retreating back to the light. The ocean's depth was not only intimidating, the black unknown was terrifying. Friends, this morning we're going to be looking at a truth about who God is that I fear many Christians treat like I treated the drop-off of the ocean. It's the doctrine of election. The doctrine that, that God, for no other reason than His sovereign, free, and good pleasure, chose some to be saved in Christ. I fear that many Christians fear this doctrine. It's like to them like a riptide into the deep theological waters that they don't want to go toward. They sense the dark mystery of God's decrees and so they, they backstroke away from the doctrine of election rather than plunging into its, its depths. And let me tell you up front, there's, there is an aspect of mystery to the doctrine of election. You'll never be able to fully trace out God's mind. You'll never be able in your finite human reasoning to reconcile it 100% with how God decrees all things, he's utterly sovereign, and yet man is responsible for the free choices that we make. But while the doctrine of election forces us to approach the text with humility, it also beckons us to plunge right into its depths. Election is not in the Bible so that, that scholars can debate over it. It's in the Bible so that we might know and worship God more fully so that we come to know the fathomless depths of His free and sovereign mercy to us in Christ. So, so friends, as we approach the text this morning, yes, come with humility, but don't come with intimidation or trepidation. Let's dive in, knowing that this doctrine is designed to put the splendor of God's sovereign glory on display for us for our joy in the Gospel. Okay, Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 25. We continue to wait, make our way through the book of Genesis. It's on page 19 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab that one. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take 
that Bible with you under your seat home to be your Bible. When we were last in Genesis two weeks ago, we looked at the epilogue of Abraham's life in which God continued to show his steadfast love and faithfulness to Abraham even at the end of his life. He kept his promises. In chapter 24, remember what happened. Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac, the son of promise through whom God would carry out his plan of redemption. Remember that that Abraham instructed this servant, don't don't find a wife for for my son from the Canaanites, the people that will eventually be judged by God. Rather, find a wife from among my kindred. And to make a beautiful, long story short, the Lord providentially guided Abraham's servant to Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, who was the son of Nahor, Abraham's brother. Like Abraham, Rebekah left her homeland to go to Canaan. And there she became the wife of Isaac. We left off two weeks ago with the death of Abraham in in chapter 25, verse 11. And we didn't cover verses 12 to 18, and we're not going to in detail this morning, but that's detailing the family line of Ishmael. If you let your eyes scan over it, Abraham's son, remember, through Hagar, Sarah's servant. And those verses tell us, it shows us that the Lord fulfilled his word to Hagar, that he would make Ishmael into a great nation, and, and also that Ishmael would be marked by conflict against his kinsmen. Then, in chapter 25, verse 19, our text for this morning, just as soon as we start to get to know Isaac a little bit, the story quickly starts to shift from Isaac to Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, and specifically Jacob, who we'll see has a major part in the story for the rest of Genesis. Isaac is theologically important, right? We know this. The blessing of God continues from Abraham through Isaac. But in the story, Isaac's kind of a transitional figure between Abraham and Jacob. Those are the central figures of the book along with Joseph. So let's read together Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. We're going to read down to verse 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat of some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. 
Thus Esau despised his birthright. This portion of the story is really easily divided into two parts. The pre-birth and birth of Esau and Jacob in verses 19 to 26. The transitional commentary, I guess that's a little bit of a different section, but it's more of a transition, a bridge. And then in verses 29 to 34, this incident sometime in the boy's young adult life in which Esau threw away his birthright. Friends, I think the main idea of this text is this, if you're taking notes. Salvation is grounded in God's free, sovereign, and electing grace. Yet you were responsible to trust in Him and to obey His Word. Salvation is grounded in God's free, sovereign, and electing grace and His grace alone. Yet you and I are responsible for the choices that we make. We're responsible to trust in Him, to respond to Him, to obey His Word. Two points this morning. Number one, sovereign freedom. We see that in verses 19 to 28. And number two, selfish cravings. Sovereign freedom and selfish cravings. Friends, I I pray that as we once again look at God's dealings with His people, the unfolding of His salvation plan, I trust that your heart might be drawn out again to praise the Lord for the depths of His love that He has poured out upon us. But I also pray that we might be sobered and chastened and warned at the sight of Esau, trashing his inheritance to satisfy his appetite. First of all, let's look at sovereign freedom. Verse 19 said, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Remember that that Moses uses this phrase, these are the generations of so-and-so. All throughout Genesis, they're like headers of major sections of the book of Genesis. And and typically, it's the son of (laughs) so-and-so that is the main focus of the next section. Same thing here. These are the generations of Isaac. That's the headline phrase. But the next section of the book is dominated by the story of Isaac's son, Jacob. Verses 19 and 20 catch us up on the details that we've already rehearsed about Isaac and Rebekah. And then we're given this new detail in verse 21. Look at 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Wait, what? This is not what we would expect after God's spectacular guidance of Abraham's servant to find Rebekah in Padam Aram. After all, the, the primary purpose for that mission was what? Procreation, the continuance of the promised line. And now, just like Sarah, for so long, Rebecca also is barren. It's obvious that Rebecca's barrenness is not the main point of this section, but it's not unimportant. According to verse 26, she had Esau and Jacob when Isaac was 60. So that means that, that Rebecca was infertile for 20 years. 20 agonizing, painful years are summed up in one verse, in verse 21. Friends, why does barrenness keep coming up like this? Why are the matriarchs of the people of God not more naturally fertile? Is it just a coincidence? Just a random run of bad luck? Or could it be that God wants again to make crystal clear that the fulfillment of His promise to give Abraham children as numerous as the stars of the sky won't come to pass because of human virility? It's not even going to come to pass by everyday run-of-the-mill biology. 
but by his life-giving power that raises the dead and gives life to barren wombs. Notice how Isaac responds to Rebekah's barrenness. He slept with her maidservant in order to force God's hand. No, praise God. That's not what he did. He didn't act like his father at this point. He didn't fall trapped to the sin of his parents. Instead, he prayed. He cast himself in dependence upon the only one who was sovereign over procreation. He depended on the promise maker to be the promise keeper. He prayed. And friends, since Rebecca was barren for 20 years, my assumption is that Isaac prayed for that long. I don't think we're supposed to think that Isaac just started praying when he turned 59 and God granted his request when he was 60. No, he endured in prayer. He persevered in prayer. In verse 21 says that the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Friends, I don't want you to miss this. God acts in response to human prayer. You know, you know what Isaac also didn't do? He didn't merely ascribe to God sovereignty and power to keep his promises, but then remain prayerless. No, he acted on that knowledge. He appealed to God to keep his word. In other words, Isaac had good theology. He understood that God doesn't just ordain the ends. He doesn't just ordain what eventually comes to pass. He ordains the very means to those ends. In his ordained end, his ordained means, I should say, to fulfill his purposes in this world is prayer. Beloved, this is two weeks in a row that the scripture has instructed us about prayer. And it corresponds with a growing burden that I and our elders have that we be a church that is marked by prayer. If we want God to work in and through this church, we must pray for that. If we want God to grant us success and fruit in our evangelism, then we must pray. If we want Him to reach down and save our children and our teens, then we must pray. If we want the Lord to grow mature disciples among us, we must pray. If we want to be marked by sacrificial love and unity, we must pray. If we want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth through Redeeming Grace Church, we must pray pray. And if it's never occurred to you that those are the things for which we must pray, oh friend, we must pray. Brothers and sisters, a sign of a church's health is not just the vibrancy of its worship gatherings and the faithfulness of its preaching, but the commitment and energy of its people to pray together. We've set aside one Sunday every two months for this purpose. I honestly wish we could do it more often, but we've set this pace to be manageable for our church. But friends, on those evenings, every other month, I would encourage you with all the pastoral oomph I can muster and the submission to God's Word, gather with the church to pray. And whether it's your individual prayer life, whether it's our corporate prayer life, by all means, don't give up. Persevere with patience. God's pattern is not to give an answer on demand, but rather to work out His purposes over time. There's no two-day shipping guarantee in our prayer life. But we know God is faithful. And we know He delights to answer prayer. Verse 22 says that after 
Rebecca conceived. The children, not clumps of cells, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Hebrew verb translated struggled is literally that these twins were smashing against each other in the womb. They were violently struggling even in the womb. And it was, of course, part of the the preview of their future conflict. Every mom knows what it's like for your developing child to start kicking in the womb, right? I remember all three of my children putting a hand on Lindsay's stomach and feeling the foot of the child press out against her. It's kind of freaky and awesome all at the same time. But imagine, ladies, that kicking feeling heightened exponentially as two babies smash into each other. Rebecca is in no doubt in great pain and very confused. And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and I think likely through her husband Isaac, but we don't know for sure. And notice the Lord's response in verse 23. He explains what this prenatal tussle is all about. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Okay, what's happening inside Rebecca isn't just two babies acting strangely, but it's a metaphor for what is going to take, what is going to characterize these brothers and their descendants throughout their history. These are not just two babies, they're two nations. Jacob becomes the nation of, of Israel. Esau, the nation of Edom, the Edomites, and they will be divided. There will be conflict between the brothers and their nations, as it indeed turned out to be for centuries. Edom became one of Israel's arch enemies. When Israel came out of Egypt, later in their history, Moses requested safe passage from the king of Edom through their land. Edom refused, according to Numbers 20. Then in Numbers 24, Balaam prophesied that Edom would be dispossessed. And this prophecy came true in 2 Samuel chapter 8 when King David and the Israelite army killed 18,000 Edomites in battle. 2 Samuel 8.14 says, And all the Edomites became David's servants. The older will serve the younger. Edom later regained its independence and later sided with Babylon in driving Judah into exile. Entire books of the Bible are dedicated to prophecy against Edom for her opposition to the people of God. Just read the book of Obadiah. So this oracle about the conflict between the brothers was tragically on point. One brother will be stronger than the other, but it's not going to be what you would expect. In this case, the older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. Now, why is this significant? God declared before these boys were born that Jacob would be the one to carry on the line of promise, even though he was the younger brother. Now, that may not seem like a huge deal to us, but in the ancient world, the stature of the firstborn was a massively big deal. The oldest was not only first, but favored. He was, he, he, as the firstborn, symbolized the strength and vitality of the father. He had the natural rights of the inheritance. In fact, in the Mosaic law codified later in Israel's history, in Deuteronomy 21, the firstborn received a double portion of the father's inheritance when he died. So when we read of barren Rebekah bearing twin children, we would expect what? God's going to work out his purposes through the oldest. 
through the firstborn. It makes a bit more sense in our, in our thinking, you know, okay, we know, okay, yeah, yeah. God chose Isaac rather than Ishmael, but, but Ishmael was the child of the flesh through Hagar. Isaac's the son of the promise through Sarah. So that makes sense to us. But Esau and Jacob both have the same parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And yet God sets his love on the younger. He reverses expectations. So what does this mean? This means that God choosing Jacob and not Esau is a result of his sovereign freedom and grace. God wasn't bound to act according to their cultural norm. He wasn't constrained by the the common societal expectation. He was free to choose whom he willed. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. He chose the younger Joseph for the special purpose of saving the people of Israel. He chose Judah, not Reuben, to headline the Messiah's line. He chose young David, not his older brothers, to be the king. Solomon, not Adonijah. He chose to send the conquering king like a humble servant, born in a manger and then hung on a cross. Beloved, God delights to confound the wisdom of this world. His grace is not dependent upon the will of man. The new birth doesn't rest on your bloodline or the will of the flesh or any human expectation, but on the will of God. God's grace to Jacob was grounded in his sovereign purpose. And you might be thinking, well, okay, I understand yeah, you're, 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 you're talking about salvation when Genesis seems like it's simply talking about the division of nations and Israel's eventual triumph. Why is that? Well, because the New Testament shows us that more is going on in Genesis 25 than meets the eye. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 9. You know we're going there. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 9. We looked at this passage briefly a few weeks ago when we were in Genesis 21. Remember the context as you turn. Paul is lamenting in Romans 9 that his kinsmen, the people of Israel, have by and large rejected the gospel. They don't embrace Jesus as Messiah. And so he he gets at the obvious question, does that mean that the promises of God had failed? Does it mean that God's whole program of salvation was just a farce from start to finish? Verse 6, Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why? For all, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. In other words, friends, salvation, as it turns out, is not based on your bloodline at all, but by faith in the promise. And why didn't all Israel believe the promise? Because not all Israel are Israel. Only the remnant who believes God's promises in Christ. Then he gives the example we looked at a few weeks ago of Isaac and Ishmael. It's not enough to be the blood son of Abraham like Ishmael was. God worked his promises through the son of promise. And now look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, there it is again, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
the reason that only some of Israel believed was because only some of Israel were elect. Only some were chosen for salvation. After all, just look at Jacob and Esau. What does Paul point out? They had the same parents, Rebecca and Isaac. They were not yet born. Why does that matter? Because at the time that God made his choice known when Rebecca was pregnant, both boys had done nothing, either good or bad. Friends, God's electing of Jacob to continue the promise had nothing to do with Jacob's character or his future choices. Nothing. Do you know this story? Do you know the character of this man? He came out of the womb grabbing Esau's heel. He sought to supplant him from the beginning. Jacob turned out to be a conniving opportunist. His very name carries with it the connotation of being a deceiver, an entrapper. In chapter 27, he lied straight up to his blind father to cheat his brother out of Isaac's blessing. Jacob was a dirty swindler. That's who he was. There's no question that Esau was wicked, but Jacob was no better. So then why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? (laughs) Well, Paul tells us in verse 11, Romans 9, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older shall serve the younger. And then Paul quotes Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Why did God choose Jacob and reject Esau? Why would he choose you for salvation while millions around you perish in their sin? So that his purpose of election might stand. All you can say is that our God is free to set his mercy on whom he wills. Your salvation isn't grounded in the flimsiness of anything about you, but in the bedrock of his purpose and will to save. And that means it can't be given to you because of anything you did, but because of him who calls, because of his grace. Now, I think the natural response to this, this doctrine is what Paul asks in verse 14. Does that mean that there's injustice on God's part in choosing one over the other? I do think it's natural for us to ask this question, especially considering the, cur- the cultural current in which we swim. All around us, equality is emphasized. Equal opportunity for everyone. There's, a, there's only justice when there's equal opportunity. But beloved, we have to guard against imposing our limited human reasoning upon God. Because Paul says that by no means is God unjust. He is flawlessly just. Why? Because no one deserves to be saved. And the salvation of anyone is based on his mercy alone. God set his love on Jacob. He rejected Esau. That's what it means by he hated him. Not because of anything worthy in Jacob and unworthy in Esau, but simply so that his purpose to save might be magnified, so that he might receive glory as the God who reverses human expectations, the only one in the universe fully free and sovereign to act in accordance with his will. So again, I ask, why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? And the answer is because he loved him. 
Why does God love you? Why does He set His love on you before the foundation of the world? Because you're inherently lovely? No, because He loves you. That's why. He loves you because He loves you. He chose you not because He knew that you would add a really needed dimension to Team Jesus, but in the free display of His sovereign mercy. He loves you because He loves you. Every Tuesday night and every Saturday, you'll find me at a t-ball field in Goodyear watching the dinosaurs play ball. I've grown to love all those kids. I do anything for them if they ask me. I love watching Hector and Xavier and Ryan and Kingston and Avi. But you know what player has the apple of my eye or is the apple of my eye? It's number five. The little boy that the coach calls Coop. Why do I love watching that boy play so much? Because he's really good at t-ball? He's getting better. I'm working with him. But no, not really. I love watching Cooper play t-ball because I love him. Because he's mine. Because I've set my love on him. Because he's mine. Friends, maybe now we're inching closer to God's heart. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us in Christ. He chose us to be connected to Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. We call this doctrine unconditional election. In other words, God didn't choose you conditioned upon anything but the pleasure of His will. There were no outside influences like your good works or your foreseen faith that caused Him to do this. He loves you because He loves you. And that's it. Friends, do you see how radically God-centered salvation is? If you're a Christian today, your salvation didn't begin when your spiritual lungs filled with the breath of repentance and faith. It extends into the infinite past of God's heart right? Into eternity, before the foundation of the world, when God decreed that you would be His if you're a Christian. And that began what theologians call the golden chain of salvation. Election is link number one. Predestination, link number one. And then Romans 8.30 says this, Paul says, and those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's an unbroken chain in God's gracious plan. If you're struggling with this doctrine, this doctrine, if you're struggling with what I'm preaching today, let me assure you, first of all, you're not alone. (laughs) Millions of Christians have struggled and wrestled with the doctrine of election because it runs counter to our human expectation. It cuts at our pride. But perhaps you might have the same experiences Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor of the 19th century. When Spurgeon initially came to Christ as a teenager, he said he thought he was doing it all himself. But then he heard a sermon on election, and he said that that sermon seared upon his soul like a hot iron. He wrote, the thought struck me, how did you become a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought Him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. 
I prayed, I thought. But then I asked myself, well, how did I come to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. That He was the author of my faith. And so that the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I describe my change wholly to God. Amen. Friends, what should this doctrine of election do in your Christian life? What should it produce in your heart? Let me give you four quick things that I believe the doctrine of election should do in your life as a Christian. There are many others, I think, than four, but I'm going to give you four for sake of time. Number one, God's electing love should melt every ounce of spiritual pride from your heart. You didn't get to Jesus because of your intellectual superiority to your family members and friends that haven't yet understood and embraced the gospel. It's not even that you happen to be at the right place at the right time. Rather, God ordained that you should be his own. He loves you because he loves you. It's entirely of his grace. It should melt our pride. Number two, God's electing love should assure, assure us that his love for us will never change. His love isn't grounded in the shallows of your performance, but in the depths of His sovereign mercy in Christ. Number three, God's electing love should motivate your evangelism. Well, if God is sovereign, why should we evangelize? Because the Scriptures say to evangelize, and evangelism is the chosen means by which people come to Christ. Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of of the elect that they may also obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. Paul saw election as an encouragement to preach the gospel, even if it meant he would suffer. Why? Because God's electing love guarantees success in evangelism. For when the elect hear the call of God, they will come. Number four, God's electing love should fuel our worship, our joy, and our holiness. The doctrine of election isn't for the ivory towers of academia, but for the furnace of your soul. God loves you from eternity past, and He will to eternity future, so shouldn't that revolutionize your present? Back to Genesis. That was kind of still in Genesis, but back to Genesis 25. Verse 24 when Rebekah's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they named, they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob, the heel grabber, the supplanter, the entrapper, the deceiver. Notice verse 27. These verses are like ominous storm clouds on the horizon. Moses skips the DVD of the story forward. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Esau really is, is reminiscent, reminiscent, isn't he, of Ishmael. He's a hunter. He's a man of the bow, a man of the field. But Jacob is more domestic. He lives in tents. This may be a clue for us. I don't know for sure. It may be a clue that, that Jacob is indeed the son of promise. He's like Abraham and like Isaac. He dwells in tents. 
Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna push talking about this parental favoritism until next week when we cover chapter 27. But needless to say, the groundwork is laid, isn't it, for the fracturing of this family. Sovereign freedom. Now let's look at the second point, selfish cravings. In verse 29, the scene changes. Esau is out hunting. Jacob is near the tent cooking. And Esau returns from a hunt that must have been unsuccessful because he's exhausted, he's famished. And right there, there are two red flags that I think perhaps set him up for spiritual disaster. Failure and fatigue. The red flags in our life too. Be careful. Verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. In the Hebrew, it literally says, let me eat of that red red. That's what it says. Let me eat of that red stuff. Esau doesn't even know what he's asking for. He merely craves the red red. Give me that red stuff. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. You see how conniving this guy is? How covetous he is? It almost seems like he's been laying the trap all along. He preys on his brother's weakness in order to defraud him of his birthright, of, of his inheritance. Now, we don't know exactly what the birthright was, but it could have been that double portion of the inheritance that Deuteronomy 21 talks about, that the eldest brother receives. Verse 32, moving quickly, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is that birthright to me? Well, clearly this is hyperbole. Esau is not about to die, is he? Because after he ate, he was just fine. He was just ravenously hungry. And in that moment, his bodily appetites, his craving for the red stuff, superseded anything else, including the birthright as the firstborn. In verse 33, Jacob makes Esau swear. Esau does this and sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of red stuff. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. There it was. That's what the red stuff is. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. The way that Moses describes this shows how crass Esau is. You see that? His birthright literally meant nothing to him. He ate, he drank, he rose and went. Also, matter of fact, he just used the red stuff to satisfy his appetite, then went on his way. So you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I can tell Esau was crass. I can tell his short-term gain produced long-term loss. He's, he's clearly caught up in the moment. He's not thinking straight. But why is this such a, a big deal? Why would Moses, in verse 34, add this editorial comment that Esau despised his birthright? Why is that such a big deal? Why would the author of Hebrews say this in chapter 12? See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Apparently, Esau is characterized not just by stupidity, but by wickedness. Why? 
Well, friends, I think the key to remembering this is that, is, is that in this particular family, this was no ordinary birthright. The birthright in Isaac's family was linked to what? Yes, the promise. It was linked to God's plan to redeem the world. That means that by despising his birthright, Esau evidenced a disdain for God's promises. He regarded God's words so little that he traded them in for some red stuff. He slurped down a bowl of stew and trashed the promises. That's why the author of Hebrews warns us so strongly, do not be like Esau. Don't let your life be characterized by the fulfillment of your cravings at the expense of your soul. Don't worship your bodily appetites. Worship the Lord of the promise. Friends, what is the red stuff dripping from your lips? What short-term craving are you pursuing that would cause you to forfeit God's long-term satisfaction? Your long-term satisfaction in God is what I meant to say by that. What appetite have you exalted that causes you to so quickly belittle God's word? Beloved, let Esau and his example be like a warning bell in your life. The one-night stand, the pornographic material, the eating in excess, the drunkenness, the illicit drugs, the prescription meds, the craving for attention or popularity or wealth, it may all seem good up front, but at the end of the day, it comes off like the red stuff. It is nothing compared to the joy and life that God offers us in Christ. In fact, everything in this life is like red, red compared to knowing Christ. Paul said this, didn't he? It's all like rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in him. Friends, some of you sitting here this morning are dominated by your cravings. And you have been for years. You live for the next hit. The next pleasure grab. Like Esau, you are enslaved to your appetites. Maybe you've tried to get help. Maybe you've done the programs. You've tried the self-help books, the asceticism. You've done all that, and yet still you're enslaved. Friends, at the end of the day, if that's you, what you need is not a program or an intervention. What you need is a death and resurrection. You need to embrace by faith the crucified Lord of glory who died and rose again to set free those who were enslaved to their passions. You come to the cross for forgiveness, knowing that Jesus paid the price for your sin. And you cast yourself upon the resurrected King to transform your life and give you new desires and new affections and a hunger and thirst, not for the red stuff, but for righteousness. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, God's oracle to Rebekah had started to come true. Jacob now owns the birthright, not Esau. But nowhere in this passage or in the entire Bible, are we ever allowed to chalk up God's sovereignty as an excuse for unbelief or sin? Friends, when Esau stands at the judgment day, he's not going to be able to say to the Lord, don't you remember your oracle about the older serving the younger? My unbelief and wickedness should be excused because that was part of your plan, right? No. The twin truth 
to the sovereign will of God in the Bible is the responsibility of man to believe and to submit to the gospel and to obey the Lord. God's sovereignty, His sovereign will does not make us puppets or robots. We have genuine wills and make genuine choices and voluntary decisions that are entirely compatible with the sovereign plan of God and His will. Esau was responsible for his sin. God was not. He was responsible. Esau was responsible to turn to his, from his sin and embrace God's word. So friends, while we embrace the, the doctrine with tenacity, we, we embrace with tenacity the doctrine of unconditional election. We embrace the complementing truth with an equal grip that you, that I, that everyone is fully responsible to to trust in Christ and submit to His Word. So friends, as as I wrap this up, let me put this together for you. Election is not designed by God to be like a black box that you have to decipher before you come to Christ. You understand that, right? Coming to Christ, you don't have to think, oh, am am I part of the elect? Should I come to Him? That's not how it works. No, coming to Christ is evidence that you are among God's elect. Whosoever will may come. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those who come to me, I will in no way cast out. So if you're not a Christian today, God's call to you isn't to figure out if you're part of His chosen people, but rather to, to, to repent of your sin and to trust in the Savior. And in that moment, as you look back, and as you look forward, you'll know that the ocean, the ocean depths of God's free, sovereign, and electing love are now yours forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a passage like this that gives us the type of view of the mountain of your sovereign mercy to us. Lord, we just want to bow before you again this morning. Bow our knees and our hearts and just say thank you. We would have never come to you had you not set your love on us. We would have never had a thirst for Christ unless you had placed it there. We would have never repented and believed unless you had given us those gifts. So Father, thank you that you did that for us. You opened our eyes. The Spirit gave us life and gave us new hearts to embrace you and to love you and to serve you. You've set us free, Lord Jesus, from the enslaving power of our appetites and our cravings. And so I pray, Lord, that you might do that work even in others here who don't yet know you. Oh, Father, set them free. Help them not to be content to remain in the chains, but to come to the crucified Christ, the risen King, and that you would set them free. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.